speaking as an editor and as a reader, I am one of those people like when I get a box of chocolates, I go for the ones I like first mm-hmm. and, you know, I'll eat them all up. And when I have a book of short stories or even a list of short stories, I definitely have a positive bias. I'm like, oh, I can't wait till I get to that one that's called Candyland Elephant. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better, better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Katie Darby. Hello, Katie. Hello, Dave. <laughs> Even after so many conversations, I still can't avoid laughing when I do that because it just always seems so forced because I've already said hello. Yeah, I know. They do it. In, at least you don't do that thing in BBC Radio Studios where they go, Dave Pickering, what do you think you address people by their first and yeah. second names as well? No, that's weird. Mm. That is definitely weird. How do you know me? I know you through stand-up tragedy. I can't remember if you emailed us or... Uh, I mean, I emailed you. I yeah. think so, yeah, with the first stand-up tragedy project, which it started at the beginning of this year, didn't yeah. it? But yeah. it was back in 2011 that you emailed. You'd heard of us, I think, via Emily Cleaver, who's one of our writers, and wanted stories, tragic stories, <laughs> which were under seven or eight minutes, I think, for reading aloud. I sent you, I think, about... 10 that were the right length and that were you know had a kind of tragic outcome or a a dark tone to them and you picked two which were black holes white dwarfs which is a sort of domestic not domestic science fiction but a kind of quotidian science fiction yeah about a couple who go on effectively a cruise to some far part of the galaxy but it's all a bit you know, banal. Anyway, yeah. it's this interesting kind of science fiction story. Well, it was. It's uh, that appealed to me particularly. It was very well written, but the other reason it appealed to me is because it, it it riffs on the end of Blade Runner. Yes. So it's like that. They're seeing whole, all these things. Because the he says at the end, I've seen sea beams. I've seen th- things you people would never believe. I've seen sea beams. Uh, something, something on the yeah, shores of Orion. But yeah. it's set there, and it's not a very happy holiday. It's a really mundane holiday. So exactly. kind of. Uh, twists that yeah. idea that it's, it's great it's to the be there. Wonder, yeah, yeah, yeah. wonder of space and the kind of, you know, the Brian Cox, oh my God, it's amazing, you know. And these people are just so used to space travel that they they find it kind of, it's a faintly boring background to their domestic problems. Yeah, it's like all best science fiction it, it comments on now. Like if I went on holiday mm. to a, a fancy place and then I was in a, a bad relationship or a boring relationship then yeah. I wouldn't appreciate the yeah. wonder of it you know, going the to Bali or going to Kilimanjaro exactly. Exactly. and you know knowing that thousands of people have actually been up there before it kind of takes away some of the wonder and the fact that they're on this ship looking at the sea beams nobody knows what they are you know and you, you blink and you miss them yeah. and you're just basically staring into black space with thousands of other people um, I went whale watching in Iceland once and it was you know everything in Iceland is it was about 40 quid or something to go out on a you know for a couple of hours to whale watch and you, you kind of hope it'll be a bit like blue planet and you'll just have a whale right next to you and yeah. you'll be able to ride it or whatever but we saw i think the tail of a whale a minky whale <laughs> as the lady said off about half a mile in the distance one tail in 2 hours and that and that's about as good as it got it's a bit like that (laughs) I think so it reminded me of that and Liz Bauer read that story and the other one was The Great Big O by Jacqueline Downs and I wasn't there for that one actually I think 
That's right. Yeah, was it? You were there for the first one. Might have been there for the second one actually. So Liz Bauer read one of them. The other one was Libby. Libby Edwards. That's right. The first one went on without me. I was doing something. I was abroad or whatever, and it was the second one that I came to. That's right. Filmed some of the other. Filmed it. Yeah, which was um, great. The only thing we managed to film. Yeah, but it's good, you know. And that Rachel girl who was the pianist who sang. uh, Uh, Rachel Paris. Yeah. Fantastic. Really, really good. So I really enjoyed that coming actually coming to one. Because it's quite similar to what Liza does, but there's a lot more variety because we've got music and poetry and all that sort of thing. So it's not just stories. Yeah, I mean, I think I mean the reason I approached Liza League was yeah because I wanted that fiction element. I mean, always, every show of Stand Up Tragedy had a piece of fiction, at least one, mm. and two of them, yeah, had Liza League presents. And uh, Liza League is something that you run, isn't it? Yeah, technically I co-run that. Ah, well, you okay. know, I have I, was... I have helped. I definitely have helped. I'm sure. <laughs> and there are various other liars, like all the other liars. You know, as many as can every month will read the stories that get submitted so there's usually at least sort of five or six people reading all the all the stories so you have lots of votes on all the stories and the ones with the most votes get through and that's that's how I make sure it's not just my taste I mean I'm I'm there at almost every event I think I've missed like one in five years but you know other people turn up and do the door and compare Ben Crystal often compares for us he's an actor and a writer as well did you come up with the concept for it yeah, me and my friend Tim Aldrich went to a reading one night. It was Tales of the Decongested, which is no longer going. And it was one of the very first, not open mic, but, you know, reading events in London, which wasn't famous writers. Right. And it was done at Foils, and it ran for about five or six years. And it was really the only showcase for a long time where writers who weren't sort of well-known, who were more kind of up-and-coming, could read their own work, which was great. And I did it myself a number of times. But sometimes when the authors read their own work, they're not very confident, Mm -hmm. or it's a first-person narrative and you're the wrong kind of person for it. I mean, I came across this problem myself. I went to UVA and they publish an anthology every year. So I did the MA in prose at UVA and we had a, a reading event, like a launch event. And I started reading my story from the anthology and I realised as I was reading it it was a gay male narrator (laughs) and I realised because I'm female everybody thinks this is just a conventional kind of heterosexual love story and I realised that I hadn't really clarified in the bit you know by the end of the story you, you find out but but in the bit that I was reading and it lost so much of the impact that problem would be solved by having a male reader, mm. you know, but I'm not really the right person to present this story without a kind of little qualifier beforehand. And also at that Tales of the Decongested event, there were some great stories, but it was quite difficult to appreciate them fully because one of the readers had quite a thick accent. One of them read really fast and one of them read really quietly. Okay. And we're going, oh, wouldn't it be great? Take the pressure of the authors if they could have actors to read their stories and then they wouldn't have to feel embarrassed or their inexperience wouldn't be a problem in presenting their story you know if they've never read before and they're cacking themselves or if they just don't have the technique of reading aloud yeah that would solve their problem they could just sit with a drink and you know watch people really enjoy their story and i've been thinking of doing something like this for ages but you know that was a real catalyst we thought that would be a really good experiment to do i knew quite a few actors because i'd done some directing Tim knew quite a few actors, I knew quite a few writers, and just gathered various people together, and that was the germination. Yeah, because it's, it's a brilliant central concept, really. I, I love the tagline, I'm probably going to murder it now. <laughs> it's all right. But it's, it's act as act, write as write, every, and audience, audience listens. listens, everyone wins, yeah. which is great. That's the idea, it's that uh, simple, really. And I really, I really think that's a great kind of simple concept. And I love the name as well, Liars League, is, it says a lot about 
what it is to be a writer. Yeah. Although it curses you to a kind of misplaced apostrophe future, which uh, I think my website was guilty of. I have to uh, say that wasn't right. wasn't me that wrote that copy. But yeah, yeah. it's okay. No, the, the, apost- <laughs> the apostrophe. I've I've just decided never to use an apostrophe in anything again. That I, if I can avoid <laughs> it, in the name of something because my my first novel is called The Whore's Asylum. And it's an asylum, obviously, for more than one whore. Yeah. Otherwise, it would be very small. If I'm Google searching it, I have to search whore apostrophe s as well as s apostrophe. And yeah, so yeah, same with Liars League. You just have to put in both versions, and I put in both versions. But when it's a great title, you, it's yeah, worth, exactly. It's, it's probably worth it. Worth it it's worth it's worth apostrophe <laughs> stress just to have the the title. But no, I really like that because you know I I can't remember who it is. I think it was John Gielgud or someone said that actors are liars. Good actors lie successfully. Yeah. Um, and it, there's a lot been said about you know fiction being a kind of lying. You know, in, yeah. invention and fabrication. It's all on a continuum. So you know, and because we're in league, obviously the actors and the writers. Well, I mean, it's from. it's an interesting thing. The idea of lying in in art. I mean, I I always sort of thought of it as I think. Um, there's a, a lyric by the band Idlewild, which is a song is a beautiful lie, and mm. I think that that's really true. But I also, I can't. I think it's, I can't remember if it's Picasso or somebody said something along the lines of fiction is truth told mm. through lying. I can't remember the exact quote, but yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's 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 what it is to me, you know. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think if if a story doesn't have something fundamentally true about it, whether it's 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 a truth of character or a truth of a situation, something recognisable, yeah. where we go, yeah, I've been there, I've done that thing, I've had that feeling. Even highly autobiographical writers like Tobias Wolff, who, who writes really about his own life a lot of the time, some of the short stories accepted, is a fantastic writer. I think it's not instinctive in British writers to write such nakedly autobiographical stuff because they might feel a bit like it's cheating yeah but you're not making it up but he turns the stuff of life into fiction that's really compelling and it's about more than just himself because so much you know autobiographical writing can be really solipsistic and self-regarding and you you think well this doesn't really say anything to me but if people write about their own lives really well compellingly then it applies to everyone who reads it mm-hmm. so it's 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 a lie in a way it's very close to the truth with tobias wolf but he makes other stuff david Sedaris is another one yeah who, who draws oh, very heavily on his, one, yeah. on his own life but you know turns it in you know you just have to kind of do that uh, rapunzel thing of uh is it rapunzel spinning hay into gold uh yes <laughs> yeah. I think it, uh, hang on no it, is it rapunzel yeah it is rapunzel yeah. Yeah, yeah she's locked in the tower and she spins in the tower does she yeah, I think was so. It, hang on, no, the, I think actually I don't know, can't remember the name of the character, but it's from Rumpelstiltskin. Isn't oh, it's it? Rumpelstiltskin. Yeah, That's I can't right. remember the name of the woman, the princess. Yeah, but it's, it it's is. Rumpelstiltskin. Yeah, wow, and the my, dwarf uh, tells her how to spin, uh, spin hay into gold. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad I worked that out. Oh thank God! Yeah, I know. I'm getting my fairy tale R's. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. well, it's 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 this is the the danger in podcasting. I've found you know through doing this project that you were. Uh, you listen back to yourself and, and go, why am I saying that thing that's wrong? How but can I not know that? Luckily, I can edit it. These podcasts, as, as much as they are based on people's real lives and what they say, the fact that it's edited means that, I guess, in a way, these podcasts are a beautiful lie as well. It's, yeah, it's the truth, but it's not the whole are, but... truth. 
Yeah. So, you know, probably when I, I talk about whale watching or whatever, then you'll go, maybe that's relevant, maybe it isn't. And, you know, you can decide what you want to present at. But I think that's good. Um, I'm probably going to keep that. I, I um, tend to keep most things apart from ums. Yeah, I'm well in favour <laughs> of editing. I, I ask any of my students, I always talk about editing being one of the most important parts mm. of the writing process. And if you can cut, you should cut. I think because that, again, that kind of just shaves away it knocks the edges off uh the unnecessary stuff and you get right down to the the core Mm. of what you really want to write about and the core of your character and the core of your plot and once you've taken off all the frills and furbelows i think they emerge as much more powerful stories which is why we used to take 2500 word stories at liars league and i really enjoy reading short stories that are longer mm-hmm. but for reading aloud the audience's attention is much harder to capture because they're not sitting at home yeah. on the sofa all snug and cosy you know they've got hours ahead of them they can read at their own pace go and make a cup of tea whatever they have to focus on that story for 15 20 minutes and that's why and radio 4 does the same thing i think the maximum story length from radio 4 is about 2100 words mm-hmm. quite a strict upper limit we've now cut it down to 2000 and it actually works much better and we have a real preference for punchy short stories if you can say something meaningful and create an emotional response in the audience and just write a really good story of you know a thousand words 1500 words wow you know it's not the shorter the better because obviously some stories need more space to expand but people who can do that i think those are some of the most successful stories people listen to a story for 10 minutes and at the end of it they go that's really said a huge amount in such a short space of time and they'll talk about it after i mean i'm the same with stand-up tragedy i try to keep the acts to you know 10 minute slots maximum five minutes is what I kind of initially ask for with the understanding that they're going to try and bargain me up. And so yeah. if I ask for five, I'll get ten, you know. Yeah. And then that, that's b- a very both good of us discipline. will feel happy. <laughs> very, very good discipline because, you know, people who enjoy performing their own stuff, you know, they can go on for mm. ever. And then, I mean, <laughs> there, and then there are exceptions that I will make for kind of headline acts if they're. Oh, but course. then that's a crafted piece. What do you do now? I teach creative writing. Well, not right now because it's holiday. Yay. So I have more time to write. That's right. I write and I I teach creative writing and I I do kind of writing events. So basically, till 2010, I was working full time and that was when I wrote my first novel. Well, no, I wrote my first and my second novel. The second one was the one to get published. Yeah, the first one's always the one that gets published, not necessarily the one that you write first, isn't it? That's the way. Uh, yes, that's right. Yeah, I think of I think of Horse Asylum as my first novel, certainly. And I was doing teaching as well. Like, since 2008, I've been teaching in the evening, sort of evening classes at City University, so adult learners, just like a 10-week course, a couple of hours a week. And then in 2010, I got my book deal in July 2010. And after that, the temping and kind of contract work that I've been doing dried up. And I would have been willing to sort of go on to another contract or the rest of it. And maybe what I always used to do is work, just no sick pay, no, you know, even I drag myself into work, I've had a you know, broken leg, whatever, for 10 months of the year or nine months of the year and save up money. And then I take two or three months off. Oh, that's interesting and good discipline as well. Yeah, exactly. It, it sucked sometimes because it meant, you know, I didn't have a holiday for a good couple of years. Like, yeah. I had time off, but I didn't have an actual holiday. People don't understand that about writers, that they think <laughs> that free time is all, your, you know, I'm, mm. I'm the same, I'm a writer too, and uh, 
it's the yeah. same problem you yeah. should always be working yeah exactly well you don't get let yourself off ever either that's the no. thing it's like you know, on the plus side you get to choose your own office hours yeah so you don't have to be working you don't have to be at your desk at nine in the morning which I've always found difficult because I'm a bit of a night owl. Right. So leaving the house at eight and getting on the northern line and just, oh, it was so hideous. It was just purgatory. And I did that for 10 years. And to be, and then when I got home, I'd want, you know, I have an idea for a story and I want to write it and I want to get it down. And I end up, you know, writing till two or three in the morning yeah. and then get about five hours sleep and be useless at work the next day. So trying to combine the two is actually quite difficult. Yeah, but you have sure. to really, because unless you're extremely lucky, no one's going to pay you to write uh, at a young age. No, absolutely. When I did a previous job to what I'm doing now, I was a library assistant and uh, I got an opportunity to write a drama that mm. was made into a podcast and then it was actually an episode of that was nominated for a Sony Radio Award, oh, so that wow. was nice. I remember like writing that in the lunch breaks. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, I was in the library and then I would go to the com- one of the computers in the lunch break yeah. and be like writing and have pe- people would come over and ask me where the book is because they know who I am and I'm like, I'm, I'm on my lunch break. You know? Of course, And it was yeah. just that, that desperate because the deadline yeah. was when it was. And so, you know, in a, you in a way... You to fit it in. Yeah. And, you know, what I would tend to do is fit it in late night, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, and I'd go out with my friends in, in the week and when I, was, when I was writing the second novel, but the first one to get published, yeah. I started that in 2007 and probably finished it like... Uh, it's probably about a year all in all so April 2007 to first draft finished <laughs> not not novel finished just yeah. the first draft in about April 2008 and, and for a year pretty much I decided that Friday night would be my writing night because I knew all my housemates would be out you see that's it isn't it so I sacrificed my Friday nights <laughs> for the sake of doing you know a, a chapter a week and you know I was quite disciplined about it I had a bit of a wobble and took a couple of months off in the middle but yeah everyone else would go out end of the week and I would stay in and write all evening but then it meant that on Saturday morning I could with a clear conscience go right I've done my writing for the week and then I could go out on Saturday your, night yeah, and have a proper well weekend week, yeah. and not sit there over the whole weekend thinking oh god I've got to get my chapter done oh, yeah I I've got to start writing. doing that exactly and it also meant that for the whole like of the working week I didn't worry about when I was going because when I have an idea in my head and time to think about it when I actually get down to the computer I write quite fast I type quite fast I'm similar to that actually yeah mm. and I kind of do it in all one burst and then I'll go back and edit it and some people that wouldn't work for at all no. they'd have to do 500 words a day or whatever and just you know really let it percolate but I tend to think about it think about it and then I'll write it down and then I'll edit it yeah and that's just what works for me. So it meant that I didn't have to completely give up my life in order to... Just my Friday evenings. Well, that's the thing about writing as well. That you, you can be working when you're on the bus because you're thinking. Yeah, and, uh, and you know, notes. Notepads notes. and notebooks. And, and now, it's all on, now it's all in my phone, but it's the same, it's the same idea. It's so I should say... For a bit of context to the any background sounds that people may hear, we're in your kitchen, we which are. is great. So there may be buzzing and stuff from bits and bobs, and there may be the sound yeah. of the TV from a, a distant room. Yeah, the fridge is, is humming, I think. Yeah, I think it's it started in the middle. And, and the other thing I was going to say from a bit of context for you and me, because we don't know each other very well. No, no. This is maybe the second time we've met in person. Yeah, Lots I of emails. So. Yeah. I studied creative writing at university it was mm. my minor I went to Lancaster University oh, okay. studied creative writing there what was your major uh, my major was in theatre studies 
Oh, cool. Um, nice complimentary yeah, subjects. For sure. Well, I, when I went there, I was a playwright. When I left, I didn't want to know about But uh, that's worn off, and now I'm back interested in theatre again. Oh, cool. But the other thing is, I've written two novels, but I have yet to write my first novel, if you see Oh, yeah, I know what you mean. Oh, <laughs> wow. Because uh, they know that they've been published. That. It's so funny so, yeah. how many people, like, when you say, because I didn't used to, you know, I was working in marketing and stuff. Yeah meet people at parties they say oh what do you do I go oh I work in marketing yeah. and you know when I started creative writing teaching I would then say that as well because it's a bit more interesting yeah. and they go oh I teach short stories so do you write you know if you had anything published and then I could talk about it but I didn't want to go hi I am a writer <laughs> yeah look at me ask me about my books because I hadn't had a, a novel published yeah, or a short story the first question they're going to ask you is what have you had published exactly have I heard of you yeah. where can I get your books yeah exactly uh, and if you don't have a good answer to that, they're kind of like, oh, you're a, you're a writer, right? Yeah. And I'm doing inverted commas with my fingers. That's right. So there's a certain amount of suspicion that attaches to that. But yeah. now I'm more confident. As I've become a sort of that. jack of all trades and master of none, it's been easier because like the, when you like I make music as well, and that's out online. So at least you can say they don't ask you if you've got a record deal. They want they say, can I listen to your music? Yeah. And you say yes, you can. Go to this website. Yeah, or exactly. now I've got podcasts. It's, it's very much it's moved even on easier. From yeah. you know, where, is your album with W. H. Smith? But there's no writing equivalent because even if you're a writer and you can say I've got this blog, or you can read my work, you know, it doesn't it doesn't have the same impact to people yeah, in the same kind th- of way. You know, I it's think weird. I think it's it's better now because people say. Because if you've written a novel and it's on Kindle, for example... Ah, yeah, that's right. People still... I mean, they won't perhaps respect it as much as one that they can hold in their hands. People like objects, don't they? They like to yeah, see that yeah. you have a thing yeah. that, that they can touch and read through. And, Not enough know. to buy my CDs, but yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah. I, but, but more so, I think, yeah. with books. Books, definitely. Definitely. Uh, definitely. You know, they're such tactile things. And, and, the, and the point of... Um, you know, an album, a CD album, is is the music on it. Yeah, exactly. And you can't experience it by just looking at the CD. You're right, absolutely right. There's a big difference. Yeah. Um, So now, you know, you can say, well, I've I've written a couple of novels that are out on Kindle, and people are like, all right then, you know, because they'll know it's two pounds or whatever it is. While it doesn't make them fall over with how impressed they are, I think it's still something now that makes it easier, perhaps, for people who haven't been published by mainstream publishers to say, yes, you can get hold of my work. Yeah. And therefore allow them to talk about it. Because, you know, if you feel kind of, not amateur, I suppose, but just not really there, like an apprentice. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a book that you can point, certainly when I started writing, if you didn't have an actual paper book that you could point to and say, this is what I've yeah. written, then I certainly didn't feel justified in, in calling myself a, a writer. And certainly not a novelist. Yeah. You know, there are plenty That's of people right. who've written novels. That's right. But I, I, I absolutely, I've never called myself a novelist until I got my book deal. Yeah. Um, and that was important to me because it's a validation, mm. you know? If someone's willing to, to pay money to buy and publish a novel that I've written, now I'm a novelist. Yeah. Before that, I was always a short story writer. I know what you mean, yeah. And if people kind of were obviously interested and would ask the questions, I'd say, oh yeah, I've written a few short stories. But again, I didn't like carry copies of them around with me no. but I did get a fantastic thrill when it was a print magazine and I got it through the post yeah, and yeah. upstairs I have a little writing shelf with all the publications the print publications that my work's been in and in the living room you'll see a bit later some of my stories have been illustrated oh, nice. yeah. uh, and some of the artwork I really like particularly the stuff that I do for a, a magazine called Scent Magazine which uh, tends to um, take flash fiction 
which is not really my genre, but you know, as and when I have a good relationship with them, they'll ask me to commission pieces, and I have written a few pieces for them as well. Cool. But they always illustrate them beautifully. And it used to be a, a print magazine, but now it's online, but they still have this real commitment to, to presenting the magazine in this beautiful way because it's fashion and art mm. and literature and, you know, um, uh, essays and all sorts of stuff. So every page is, is beautifully designed and every story has, has an original piece of artwork to go with it. Oh, that's amazing. I'm, I'll pass yeah. that on to my girlfriend. She does flash fiction, so oh, she'll really? really be interested in that. Yeah, Yeah, she should email me at Liasley. Okay. Because, you know, they, they now do kind of like mini monthly versions of the magazine. And they, I think they publish quarterly or every, like twice every year or something for the, the big productions. But they update the website every month and they have a new theme every month. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's an email me. Well, that's cool. I mean, it's weird, isn't it? We're in a, in a moment for fiction, which I think kind of hit music about five or ten years ago. Yeah. The gates have been open. And, yeah. and then now, because of the Kindle, because of the internet, because of even publishing sites like Lulu or whatever, yeah. self, it used to be self-publishing. It was really vanity because yeah. you had to spend thousands and thousands of pounds exactly. or whatever to do it. But now you don't have to do that. Like yeah. You can have a print-on-demand site. Mm. And so we're suddenly in this kind of moment where it kind of feels like it's being opened up anyone can yeah, do it it's but been then, democratized yeah exactly which i like actually i really i i think it's a, a great thing because in the past as an author you could argue that you're a genius but it's just that all the major publishing houses are too afraid to take a chance yeah, on yeah. your incredible work yeah you could kid yourself much easier yeah exactly <laughs> but now you know and i'm among those people i'm sure there are many absolutely fascinating people, beautifully yeah. written you know really kind of mind-bending brilliant mm-hmm. stuff that does deserve a wider audience and you know publishers do make commercial decisions because otherwise they would fold and die yeah. they would just lose money hand over fist so if they think a book won't sell they're not going to publish it but now because of you know the print on demand being so cheap because of kindle publishing being so cheap if you have a book that is a bit risky or you know different or experimental you can put it out there and people can get access to it and they can read it and for a lot of writers they don't actually necessarily want millions of pounds that would be nice absolutely they just want their work to be read and appreciated and you know communicate with the readers who are on their wavelength yeah maybe like a living wage that would be good Uh, that would be yeah yeah, i mean a lot of conventionally published writers That, that yeah, that's right. People, that's the that's the other thing that people don't realise that when if that you must be experiencing this now. If if you say, oh, I'm a novelist, they go, oh, you make money from like no, you don't. You you've still got a job. You like you know yeah. that's the way it works. Yeah, I mean even even really, and I'm I'm just a debut novelist, so you yeah. know, unless you have something amazing or some kind of um, uh, selling aspect, unless you're already well known or maybe you're moving from non-fiction to fiction whereby you've got an established fan yeah. fan group and an established audience, they're not going to risk a lot of money on, on your debut book. Or unless it's super amazing and there's loads of publishers you know, who, who think it will, will be a big like breakout. Mm-hmm. Like Sadie Smith, for example. Yeah. I think quite a few people were after her for her first book and it was a huge hit. And, you know, but she is the exception. That's the reason why these, these authors are in the news, you know, so-and-so, unknown 18-year-old gets, you know, a £100,000 book deal, or more like half a million or whatever. Um, there's, there's only one of them every yeah. year, 
you know, or, or even every two years, that's that's a crazy amount of money to spend. Yeah. Because you then have to sell like half a million copies and to, it, to and make it, money back. And also, I mean, the, the, the democratisation is great, but it's the same thing that's happened with music will happen with writing as well. Like, there's two problems. It's that, that you'll, you, as, as all writers know, that we are there are loads of us about. Oh, yeah. Everybody's writing a blooming novel, and and, oh, and no. so you know you, you, yeah. you think you're spe- like I remember thinking I was special at school, and then yeah. going to university and discovering you know there was loads of people writing. But then when you go out into the real world, there's even more. You know, it just increases yeah. it every level. You get more and more writers. Um, and so there's so much more noise. It's hard to get your, yourself heard. You're competing mm. against oh, everybody. Yeah, uh, and it's it's well, crazy. actually, I think you're not competing against everyone because I remember. You know, at university, um, I, I I did loads of acting, actually, loads of acting right. in theatre and, you know, got into direction afterwards at university. And I did English as my subject. So I knew loads of arty people and we all wrote poetry and yeah. plays and, you know, people were working on their novels and all that sort of thing. Less short stories then. I mean, I think it was that, that thing of, you know, I want to write my novel by the time I'm 21 and then I could just sell it to Bloomsbury uh, and, you yeah. know, I'll graduate, I'll sell it to Bloomsbury and then I'll go on my first world tour. That right. Read yeah, my that, novel. That dream. Uh, that, that one indeed. And, you know, lots and lots of talented people, lots of extremely, you know, well-read, intelligent, creative people were doing that back at university and 10, 15 de- years down the line... They give up. Not... Well, yeah. I mean, 10, 15 years down the line, or like five years down the line, they give up. Yeah. But... but that's how you know you're a writer, I think, because you just don't give up. Yeah, yeah that's exactly. What, that's what I said. And it's I not think. because that's they didn't have talent. Stop, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you cannot say, I will be a writer, I will be a musician, I will be an artist, but only if I achieve success in yeah. my first five years no exactly which for you know when you're an undergraduate you're like five years I'll be 25 <laughs> by the time oh my god I'll be ancient yeah. you know you have to understand that success will come when you're ready for it I think like p- particularly for writers when you're good enough at it yeah you have to <laughs> work you, on your craft yeah you, you do and you have and to make when you're those young, mistakes you don't think that that is uh, you don't even really understand like I, I remember you know uh, look, I look back at myself when I was at university and my attitude to my writing, and I'm just, it's just—it's painful, you know. I'm sure everybody does that. Like yeah. The idea of working on my craft—I just thought that it kind of came out of me, fully formed, you know, like Athena out of Zeus's yeah, head. And that's yeah. not how it works. I think, I think, <laughs> like on very rare occasions, like an idea yeah. can. Do or you that. can be lucky, and you can have that one time or occasion. Yeah. And, and songs, it's much more likely yeah. to happen than a songs novel. and poems yeah. as well. Yeah, poetry know, too. Yeah, yeah. The idea of inspiration striking, or an idea for a short story, but an idea for a novel, unless it's some really high concept thing like. You know, Alien was pitched when it when it first came out as as Jaws in space. Yeah. Okay, so you know what kind of story it's going to tell, but then you'd still have to go in and work all, out all the details. But ideas for novels, I mean, it's not really one idea; it's many, 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 many ideas yeah. in a novel. You have, need to know where the characters come from, and obviously, you know, a, a plot can't be just one idea. It can be one overarching idea, but but not just. And novels are very much, I think it's. It, a good a good kind of comparison is sculpture you know you've got this block of stone and yeah. you're finding out what's actually there inside mm. it because you it's know a block you, of text yeah <laughs> when you start case. you think you're saying this thing and then you find yeah. out halfway through that that storyline is now the big important one and yeah. you thought it was a subplot and you know and all this stuff you know yeah and, and it takes time yeah. it takes time a long and you know time. It, 
what's what is great about being a young writer is that you think you're brilliant yeah generally speaking well there are some some poor young writers who who think they're terrible and therefore don't come out as it were as writers like they'll never show anyone their poetry they'll never show anyone their their stories because they're afraid that then they're not as good as they want to be and you know i think i think that's a perfectly acceptable thing not to be as good as you want to be I, i think very few writers professional working nobel prize winning writers are as good as they want to be however amazing they are mm. but it's it's difficult i think particularly if you know you're at university and you know you've got good grades and all that sort of thing you kind of want to be a big fish and you don't want to have to handle rejection so early but you know that that is the writer's life really isn't it well that's right rejection sorry your the... story's not quite right for us sorry you know your novel i my first novel i sent off the first two chapters to a couple of agents that was like 2001 or something and uh, it had been written in great haste when i had an extremely boring job so i literally sat down and wrote for eight hours a day yeah just to amuse myself because there was no internet. There was I wasn't allowed to read magazines. I was on reception in this building that was undergoing refurbishment. I was like, I asked my boss, I'm just going mental with boredom. Can I, can I please just bring in my computer? I'll just you know write away. I'll you just... look professional. Exactly, that's right. And it it made me look like I was doing something. Yeah. People don't like to see an idle person either. Indeed. So it saved me from rearranging the pens for eight hours at a stretch. And um, anyway, I sent it off, and uh, one agent got back to me and went, Yeah, I found the prose strangely cloying I was like ah thanks <laughs> and you know at least she said something feedback is always fair you know, enough I think it's always valuable even when it's wrong it's get, it's better to get something back yeah because uh, at least if you decide it's wrong you've learned something about your work yeah like and if you realise it's right well that's yeah. brilliant to get that because it means the next time you send it out it's great exactly. I mean it is it is an endless thing of banging your head against a brick wall even when you start getting positive responses sometimes you find a weak spot in the wall <laughs> yeah well that's it I mean I, I had a, I wrote a, a science fiction novel that I had a really good response from a publisher mm. about but they still didn't want to publish it you know they wow. were like well they, you know they were like you know I liked it even though she, she said even though it was written in the oh, I'm going to get okay. what second person the one that's instantaneously happening Oh, the the present continuous. That's right. So even though I hate books like that, uh, I actually I still liked it. I'd love to publish it, but we can't at this moment, you know, oh. take a chance on blah, you know. And so it, that was great to get back. It was so good to get finally yeah. a response saying, you know, what you're what you're working on isn't rubbish. Yeah, isn't a total waste of time. But yeah. but it was almost you know it was great to get that. Then then that wires off, and you just get frustrated with the fact that. You, you want to believe that if a publisher likes your work, yeah. then that's the only criteria they're going for. But they're not. As you say, they have yeah. to make, in this moment, they have yeah. to make financial decisions. They have to talk to their marketing people. Especially because what we were talking about earlier on, this democratisation, there's, an, there's another element, which is that Kindle books will be pirated, are already being pirated. Yeah, and yeah. so the, the same thing that happened to music is going to happen to mm. the publishing industry. And it's weird because when you think of books they're so physical as you were saying it's weird to think that now they can just be grabbed and shared and some part of me thinks that's great because I want people to read my stuff and if they don't have the money then that's fine but part of me also thinks well how am I ever going to make any money exactly if you want to read it and I want to want to charge for it then you should be paying that money and it, and it is so difficult again in any of the art sectors it's so difficult to make make a living as an actor as an artist as a writer as a dancer probably you know every little helps you know so if your kindle book is only 99p and someone pirates it you're like yeah how cheap are you exactly 
Although, isn't it Neil Gaiman says like actively encourages people to to take to have his does stuff he? for free? Yeah, I think well, he's he does. Already made his but power, then he, exactly, he? he can. Yeah, and he's finding that's, other ways that's, that's financing fantastic. himself as well. Well, isn't you he? know, that's fantastic. I mean, if well, you, surely pirating couldn't, couldn't he just give it away? I think he does. That's he does give it away. Oh well, that's fun. that's his decision. Though. He gives away the digital version, right? But not the, obviously not. Oh, the, not the not the actual book version. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's fine. I mean, if he's got an arrangement with his publishers whereby he can do that, then. I think awesome. he, yeah. Well, he can he can have any arrangement he likes. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, he's got a rider. Yeah, that's brilliant, and I think that's really cool as well because you know a lot of his fans are going to be younger and they're not going to have a huge amount of money to spend on you know the beautiful glossy versions. They just want their fix of of game, and that's. Very impressive of him. But, but I mean, the truth but, of you it... Know, he, I, I doubt very much he'd be doing that if he was starving in a game. That's the thing. The truth of it is, regardless of how you, how you feel about any of these things, ultimately, if people want p- artists to make art, they have to be yeah. able to live. And yeah. so we have to find a way of doing that. You know, And I, I understand people's frustrations with corporations or whatever. And yeah. actually, a lot of this new developments mean that maybe you know you don't have to have those corporations. You can go directly from you know your pocket to my pocket you know and that's that's good too but i think you know the conventional route of publishing um it does add a huge amount of value to that's true as well well that's the other problem is that people are i i I desperately want an editor yeah uh, and obviously i haven't got one but people are starting to get into the mindset of i don't need an editor and, and maybe you don't need the editor you think, get think, from the publishing company that you don't like, but the one mm. that you do like, the one that fits you. Yeah, you, yeah. You need that editor. I need my perfect editor. Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think that's a bit of a, you know, fallacy. The fact that you can self-publish without, you know, proofreading your stuff and having somebody else look at it with a, um, an objective eye really doesn't mean that you should. Yeah. <laughs> it's self-indulgent, isn't it? I mean... Um, I, I just mistrust people who don't think their work needs editing... I, I think it's, I, you know, for a long time when I was writing, I was writing so fast, like when I was writing this this first novel, which also happened to be science fiction, by the way, yeah. dystopian sci-fi, I was much more enthused by getting it down than making it good. Because I didn't really think it would ever go anywhere. Yeah. And, and also the thing with short stories, which is kind of where I was coming from, and poems as well, is that you do it in a night or a couple of days, and you try that story and you send it out to a few competitions and magazines, and if people like it, it gets published, and if they don't, you write the next one. The problem is you can't really do that with a novel. I'm much more interested in writing the next chapter than I was in editing the previous one, because I just thought, well, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Yeah. But since learning more about myself and the writing process for other people and all the rest of it, and particularly since going on the MA at UEA, I have come to value editing very, very highly. Yeah. And there are a few short stories that I had in my archive, you know, like my, like my bottom drawer, for years in some cases. And I went back to them and I'd see a competition or a theme or something. I'd go, oh yeah, I have got a story on that, but it was never quite right, you know. I sent it out a few times, it didn't work. And I've gone back and I've either cut them or change them. The most important change is usually changing the ending. Yeah. And with my, what I now believe is a, an objective editorial eye, me me now rather than me five years ago, I can go through it like a stranger and write that sentence self-indulgent, that analogy doesn't yeah. work, that ending is just a bit shit and change it and send it off. And I've, I've managed to place a couple of old stories by overhauling them and editing them properly. Yeah rather than clinging to them like they're my little baby yeah. and not letting anyone, even myself, 
touch or change it. Having other people's input, I mean a penguin, I had to do a major overhaul of the text. I did a minor overhaul and then they realised, I pointed out, that it was longer than 100,000 words, so 100,000 words is average novel length, basically. Yes. It was 130,000, and I went, uh, on the contract, you've, uh, you've got the word count wrong. Uh, it's a bit longer than that. And uh, my editor went, oh, yeah, mm, that's a bit of a problem. Yeah, I'm going to have to lose about 20,000 words. I was like, shit, no! Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's perfect. And that took me a couple of months, going through the whole... And by that stage, there was nothing in there no scene no section that I felt superfluous I had to go through the whole yeah, book sentence yeah. by sentence and cut it and I'm so glad I did yeah. because I think it's much tighter it's set in at the 1880s and it's in the style of that time you know the narrators are of that that time so it has that kind of um, florid Victorian style uh, often you know the sentences are quite long and there's lots of descriptions and all the rest of it and it's difficult to edit something like that without compromising the style but you know I think pretty much every set certainly every paragraph in that book was cut on the final draft edit but it's really really freeing as a writer I think as well Mm. when you have to cut because you're going into the editing process with an objective yeah like actually when you go into editing and you're editing and you haven't got a reason to cut things yeah it's harder to know what to cut whereas you know I, I wrote a short story that got published and it was too long like you say uh, and that was great because when I went back to it I was like right well I have to cut this many words in order to send it off to the people I'm sending it uh, to and it was just so yeah freeing because yeah. just having a framework for yeah. what I needed to do yeah having but, having sort of rules uh, deadlines competitions and, and, and magazines and stuff are brilliant for deadlines and rules yeah it can't be over 5,000 words it needs to be in by October 31st you know and that is what you work to and they're not going to hear but it's an amazing story. It's yeah, 6,000, yeah, yeah. but it's amazing. Wow, those 6,000 words are amazing. They'll just go, delete. You know, or you get it in on November the 1st. I'm really sorry. God, I just had a really big night out or my dog was sick or whatever. They don't yeah, give a shit. They don't care. So that forces you to discipline yourself. And I think that's that's one of the most valuable things a writer can have well, is I think discipline. You're absolutely right. And the, the biggest advice I always think uh, right, unpublished writers need to have is that until you get an editor you need to find some people that you trust who will be very, very critical Mm. and very hard on you. Like, I'm in this kind of writing group where we meet up and we critique each other's work. And it's so beneficial. People that you trust and I think that whose opinion you respect. So it's not just trust, you know, I kind of, I trust my mum, but no offence to her, I would rather have someone who was a writer as well as a reader to look at my work from both points of view. And I also fear that my mum might be slightly biased yeah. towards telling me that it's brilliant, even yeah. if it's not. And I know that editors won't do that. I mean, with my book, I gave it to my, my then agent, who gave me some very pertinent criticism and said, you know, you need to change it. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> she doesn't understand and then I realised that you know if I wanted to to ask her to represent it I really had to Mm -hmm. had to make those changes so I made those changes and I gave it to an ex of mine who is a writer himself one whose work I really really admire and who's very very pernickety as well like has super high standards and gave it to him for his opinion and criticism and another friend who is a sub-editor at the Guardian and the Independent but also just one of the, the most literary cultural artistic men that I know he just he's read everything he 
he used to get Sight and Sound magazine. He's watched every foreign film, you know. He he reads novels all the time and goes to art galleries. And he's just completely involved in culture. That's his thing. And I I wanted to get his his opinion on it as well. I also knew he'd go through and correct all the typos. Yeah, that's good. I knew he'd proofread it in that very anal sub-editor way. Yeah. And I also knew he'd give me a very informed and intelligent opinion and considered an honest opinion of whether it was any good or not. Perfect. Yeah, so I'll be using him again. You studied English at Oxford, is that right? And then you went to the UAA to do an MA. I I didn't do the MA immediately after English. I did it in 2005. So I graduated from Oxford in 97. And I hung around in Oxford, you know, working in bars and doing doing actually an evening, a part-time evening course at the Oxford University Department of Continuing Education, which is the kind of adult education branch of Oxford University, which is at Rooley House, Kellogg College, Cornflake College as they call it. So it's affiliated with the university. They tend to do kind of a bit like Birkbeck, you know, evening courses and weekend courses rather than full-time undergraduate. It was an evening course, it was a new course in creative writing, two years, every Thursday evening, and a couple of weekend kind of summer courses. What was really interesting is that they accepted people from three strands, so poetry, prose and script. And they also made you whatever you got in on. So it was sort of, it was selective. You had to submit a, a piece of work or a body of work, like 10 poems or whatever. So you'd then do poetry for a term. And then they'd make you, kicking and screaming, <laughs> write prose. And then they'd make you write script. And that was really, really useful for me because I had gone in on poetry. And I only wanted to do poetry. And I didn't want to hear about anything else. And poetry was all I cared about. And I was going to be a poet. And then they made us write short stories. And I really, really got into short story writing and script writing actually and I still write scripts and I still write short stories and prose uh, and I kind of haven't written any poetry for quite probably a long made time. the right decision financially yeah. financially yeah <laughs> no I love I love poetry I love reading yeah. poetry um, I, mean, I used to write poems but yeah yeah and I, I also you know I, I saw in the poetry that I was writing a lot of it was almost like flash fiction it was mm. narrative it was telling a story and when I discovered that you could like tell a story by writing a story I, I just glommed onto it, and I, I uh, it, that just happened to be the, the flavour of poetry that I write, wrote anyway. It was less kind of contemplative, you know, capturing a moment or whatever. Yeah. It, it tended to be, you know, about characters, about people, about an event or whatever it is. I just thought, yeah, this is... If I ha- had an idea, I would suddenly start having ideas for, for stories rather than poems. Yeah. And enjoying that. And also learning a new skill. Yeah. Because I hadn't written prose fiction... The first short story I wrote, I was 21, I think, which is right. quite late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really quite That's late right. to start for someone who ends up being, you know, a prose writer. Yeah. And before that, I'd just been like poetry, you know, don't don't talk to me about, you know, I love reading books. Well, poetry is a really good training ground, I think, for prose as well, because it, it's precision of language. Yeah. And so if you learn how to do that, then it means that when you write longer fiction, you're less likely to go off on just rough, you know, not well crafted oh, prose. Do you know yeah. what I mean? You get Yeah, I do know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. I think it can be. I think for me I tended to be quite dense and elusive. Yeah, T. S. Eliot's my hero, although he in some ways he writes quite plain poetry. I tended to, to kind of overcook it a little bit. Okay. Which I could get away with more if in I was poetry, writing yeah. about, you know, dew on the trees or whatever it is. Yeah. And my less successful poems are the ones in which nothing happened. And I was just playing with a pretty language. Right. And I had to <laughs> unlearn that aspect of of poetry writing 
um, because I, you know, I wasn't a minimalist as a poet. I absolutely was not okay. a minimalist. Right, right, right. Okay. <laughs> Although I, w- you know, I, st- I still would search for the precise description or the or the you know the best metaphor or something like that. I tended. It meant, coming from poetry, I actually tended to overwrite and I had to sort myself out a bit in terms of prose. And I and I thought I had an idea for, for a story and it would end up being a prose poem. Mm. So it took me a while to move from one to the other uh, just because of the style of poetry that I tended to write. That's why I did the MA in prose at, at UEA because that was 2005, so like eight years after I graduated. Right. I applied the year before with a story that had come third in the Fish Prize. So, you know, you're allowed to apply using work that, that has been published. That's good. And also winning prizes and getting publication stuff, it's all validation. The other thing is putting all your eggs in one basket as a novelist means that that you don't get that kind of slow, thin trickle of encouragement. You might send out 100 short stories or poems in a year or, you know, send to 100 places. Yes. And you only get 10 yeses, but those 10 yeses keep you going, or five yeses, or yeah. even one. And that one yes will keep you going because you know you're not just a deluded fool writing rubbish. Yeah. Because someone else has, has wanted it enough, you know, liked it enough to, to, to put their time and effort into publishing it. And very occasionally their money. Anyway, I applied for this story and I'm like, yeah, definitely get in. <laughs> Didn't even get an interview. And then the next year I applied again. Whole application form, exactly the same. Personal statement, all the same. I just changed the story, which was a runner-up for the V.S. Pritchett Award uh, okay, in that yeah. year. And it was half the length as well. The previous story had been 5,000 words, 5,000 their limit. And this one was about 2,500 words, one of the shortest at the time I'd written. And I got in and I got a scholarship. So That's great. Keep trying, yeah, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and it's down to the taste of, of the people who read. After a certain level of competence... It's just taste. Yeah. yeah, I mean, look at the Booker Prize. Yeah. There are some amazing books on there and some people will love Hilary Rantel and some people it's not going to do it for them. I quite like shortlists drawn up by committee because it means that narratives in very different styles and different genres mm. can get a look in yeah. because one person just hates historical fiction or, you know, will, will never read a romance novel or hates fantasy. It doesn't mean that the really good science fiction, fantasy, historical, whatever, uh, doesn't doesn't get a chance now that brings me on to studying creative writing mm. there isn't a committee when well there wasn't for me when i studied creative writing i had a tutor oh. so it was a one person's opinion oh really over the writing and oh. okay yeah at the, at the end we got marked based on a committee i guess the yeah, various different yeah. tutors would have agreed about what they were marking on yeah but the process of shaping our work during the year we would have Basically, one, to someone's, person. one person's taste, and so, and that was yeah, and that that made me have a very negative relationship with being taught writing because you know oh. my old tutor would say things like you can't have direct address to the audience. You that's, can't. Yeah, that's so it's illegal. Or well, she said that was so seventies, and I was like, well, Shakespeare was doing it. It's so ever forever. Yeah. Um, and things like that, and 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 whilst she that's had so seventies, it's also nineteenth century. Exactly. It's eighties. It's, <laughs> it's, it's it's bizarre. I mean, you know, Goodfellas has direct address to the audience. Yeah. Especially meant in prose rather than drama. Well, but... she meant in in both. Actually, she was really against it. And, and, oh. and that's just a bugbear though isn't it and she didn't like science fiction I didn't write science fiction when I was submitting to her but other people did and, and in fact my first experience of creative writing was we went we sat you know the first creative writing s- seminar a girl submitted a poem about God and she said you can't write about God and I'm not a Christian and I don't believe in God but I spent a long Did time you then have arguing a list of with her about topics that. you can't write you know, about God 
politics, you know, your own family history. Yeah. Well, that's it. And I, and I wasn't a great person for that environment because I, I won't, I won't stand for that stuff. Yeah. Which meant that my whole group, unfortunately, kind of was subjected to a kind of. That's three-year war between me and or two-year war between me and her. Yeah, yeah. I think it's mm, personally. I, I I have a couple of bugbears. I'm just trying to think of the things that I say people shouldn't do. I don't think. Oh, I think it's more I insist on people doing stuff yeah. rather than than not doing stuff. So I always insist that people give their work a title. Right, uh, yeah, good, good and even if advice. it's just a working title, because it it makes it real, you know. If you yeah. name it's like naming a baby. If you name it, you know, it's real, and you kind of then you work out whether or not that's the right name. Mm. You know, we could call him Morris. No, we're not. We're going to call him Tom. You know, yeah, tried yeah. out Morris for a couple of weeks. No, it's not working. When you see him, you might change your mind about the name, but yeah, you, you've, you've got a name to conceptualize him. Already. You know, yeah, at yeah, the very yeah. least, it's something to call your folder on your computer exactly. rather than untitled novel. Yeah. Finding the right title is really important and it advertises the work and it defines and it can give information about that story as well. Speaking as an editor and as a reader, I am one of those people like when I get a box of chocolates, I go for the ones I like first mm-hmm. and you know I'll eat them all up. And when I have a book of short stories or even a list of short stories for Liars League, well I now tend to read them in alphabetical order because that's how the you know it seems fairer that way. Yeah. I definitely have a positive bias. I'm like oh. I can't wait till I get to that one that's called Candyland Elephant. Well, titles are so important. Yeah. And a lot of the time writers don't realise that. I love a good title. Yeah. And, you know, even if the story doesn't live up to the title, I've read it first, you know. Yeah. There's an anthology of 30 stories and I've gone to your story first. So yeah. you have a natural advantage yeah. if you can think of a really good title. Yeah, so, I mean, that's something I always ask for from my students, but I think I don't tell them not to do things. I'm just trying to think. Maybe, maybe I do. I say always edit, so I suppose the converse of that is is telling them not to not to ignore all yeah. the feedback they get. Yeah. But I guess you've had the experience of being a writer that's being taught mm. to write, and now you're teaching to writing. So I mean, yeah. I guess you've had both sides of the coin. I guess. Yes, I have. Yeah, but I mean, I have to say that my. Oh, sorry. No, that's good. It's, uh, <laughs> I feel it's, like I'm doing it. advert. Yeah, yeah. Mm, refreshing. Yeah. At UBA, I had a very different experience. Our teachers were not proscriptive. If we asked for their opinion as to whether something was good or not, they would say that. But more to the point, the critique was done as a group thing. So you did have a committee and you did have a chance to kind of survey the land and and see how many people responded well to your story and how many didn't. Frustratingly, a lot of the time it's half and half. Who likes the ending? Half the people put that. Who doesn't like it? Oh God! Now what do I do? Yeah. Um, but it really helps to to have that kind of crowdsourcing yeah. on how well your story comes across. A few times I wrote a story that I thought was brilliant, and everyone was like, "Meh." Equally, I wrote stories where I really wasn't sure if I was on the right track, if people would get it, if they'd even like it, if I was just completely barking up the wrong tree. And to my surprise, people liked it more than I did. Yeah, that's interesting when that happens. I mean, I get that now with my writing group. I mean, that's the thing. I never thought I'd go back to that (laughs) seminar situation because I had such a... And I don't want to misrepresent Lancaster too much. It was only one tutor. And also, there was that element of asking everybody. 
but yeah. it's just the person who marks it matters the, more. The, the, yeah, the, the weight of their opinion. <laughs> their yeah. opinion weighs much, much more. Uh, and you get detailed about. notes from that person, whereas you didn't get detailed notes from everybody else. Oh, we got detailed notes That's from great. everyone. That's a really good process. That, I, I mean, that. that is what makes doing an MA a more rewarding and helpful yeah. experience than doing it as part of another degree because you just have that much more time. Yeah, that's great. You yeah. know, if you're doing theatre studies as well, and this is a minor, yeah. people don't really have time to read three, 5,000 word stories a week and provide exactly. a detailed critique and talk about it yeah. for an hour. Well, we would talk about it, but there would be no, we wouldn't all give it, what I, what I think is valuable is if everyone gives you their notes. And yeah, exactly. Sort of thing, right? And we were, we were asked to take printed copies of the story, go away, read it, mark it up and write a little thing yeah. at the end. I have stolen my way of workshopping completely from UEA yeah. because I think it works really well. God knows I, it's difficult, but I try and shut up when the other students are giving their opinion and I won't like start off with, I think this is brilliant or, or I think this re- needs a lot of work because that can colour the discussion mm-hmm. as well. If the tutor obviously comes out really strongly for or against something, the students can kind of second guess themselves and go, well, I, I really liked it first. Oh, maybe no, now I'm seeing the flaws. Yeah. And that's not an, an honest response. So, you know, I think to, to let the students speak first to one another about their work and then I'll kind of weigh in on certain t- you know like I'll join in the discussion um, but I won't like go so this is brilliant everyone else think it was brilliant yeah, yeah let's move on it's very difficult to give people a good and useful response if for example they're doing a thing that you yeah. don't like them doing you have to kind of look past it and that was probably, you know, the problem with your your tutor. She could just couldn't get past. I think so. Like, Why is he using direct address? I yeah. told him not to use direct address. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a, it was an interesting experience, but it was probably valuable. I mean, I learned a lot of things about writing from that. But I think it took me a long time to be able to see that the baby that, that I shouldn't be throwing out with the bathwater yeah. that I'd learned from her. Like it took me a long time to to learn the lessons that she yeah. had to teach me because of the framework that it was given in. Sometimes it seems so arbitrary. Kate Pullinger was a visiting tutor and uh, there was one story that I wrote where she had said, you use the word I a lot or something. It was like some word like, I'm pretty sure it was I, it might yeah. have been an or the. No, it, the yeah. word it, okay. okay, had come up in a particular paragraph too often and I was like, that's mental, what? How could, you know, <laughs> I, it just never occurred to me as a problem. And I don't think it was that the it's were referring to different things. I think she just found that it kind of pounded on, Bounced you know, it, yeah, it just you. jumped I mean, out. It's just one of those things happen, she I was am. sensitive to. It's a bugbear of mine, actually, repeated words. Yeah, but I was, I was simply not sensitive to it. And then I was like, wow, that's really left field. But then I went back, I'm like, yeah, there's, you know, yeah. I could change it. There's a few it's that could be something else, you know, yeah, no, no skin exactly. off my nose. To have been taught by her for the whole year, yeah. I would have amended my writing to to suit, you know, what what I knew was, was her taste and to avoid the things that I knew she didn't like. So I would have gone through like pruning it's all the way through. And, yeah. you know, it's just, and it's a small thing as well, you know, I don't think an excess of it's would have brought me down a grade or something. But there is that problem of writing just for one person rather than for yourself. And knowing you have to to please someone or to tick certain boxes in order to get a high mark, which luckily we didn't have at UEA because our thesis was was marked by two people. So there was an original marker and then a a kind of a secondary marker to kind of check. And we didn't know who it was going to be. Right. So it would have been one of our four tutors, yeah, Patricia, you Michelle, it to their taste. exactly. Right, so you couldn't be like, well, I know Andrew Cowan really likes, you know, this kind of narrative. 
Um, so I will write something for him. Uh, you you were forced to write, you know, what you wanted to write, and you get advice from your tutor. Right. But, but well, that's uh, yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, before I go on to the last section, and we are running a little bit over, so I'm sorry. Me, no, 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 you, it's not your fault. But let me know if if you have to wrap it up sooner rather than later, and then I'm I will. Fine. Could I uh, steal another yeah, one of your cigarettes? Because I, as a writer, I am not just a liar but a uh, a thief. Um, <laughs> do you think that you can teach great writing? Yes, um, so, in the sense that. Okay. Well, actually, no, you you ask me, and then I'll tell you what I mean. You tell me what you mean by the question, I'll tell well, you what I mean by my answer. Okay, so what I mean is, I absolutely believe that you can learn the craft, but I don't think that you can teach someone who hasn't got the initial talent the craft, because you have to have both talent and craft to become a great writer. That's my thesis, I guess. For, well, there's can you teach creative writing, can you teach great writing? Yeah, great writing as well. I think great writing probably can't be taught, because so much of it comes from, from the person themselves. I think many techniques of writing, bringing people's talent out, I feel like that's kind of teaching anyway. Yeah, Do you know yeah, what I mean? definitely that's teaching. Teaching is bringing people's talent out. They're talented at maths, and you challenge them, and you get them interested, and... They're talented at writing, but you know they they tend to overwrite, or maybe they aren't so strong on plot, or whatever it is. And you enhance what they they have problems with. You know, you work on that, and you you reward them, and you you compliment their amazing characterization, whatever it is. I think it can be taught in the sense that. Right, I'm going to contradict myself now because I tell my students to do certain things, like give it a title. Yep. But that's that's not, you know, I don't tell them to write only in the first person and they have to do it past tense, whatever. I think it's more a question of teaching people what not to do rather than what to do. Yeah, I agree with that. Because they know what they want to do. Well, they should know what they want to do, you know, in their hearts. Even yeah. if they don't, they're like, oh, I want to write a novel, but... but they might not know how to do it, but they know what it is they want to do. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And yet there are certain pitfalls that particularly beginning writers make. For example, the first five pages of a novel might be somebody waking up in bed. Now, there's... You can you can break it. That's not a rule. You can you can do that, but you have to make it interesting. Yeah. A book narrative is not the same as the narrative of your day. Exactly. If the first important thing that happens in that day is that your character gets fired, don't have them waking up, brushing their teeth, putting their clothes on, getting on the tube, thinking about how shit it is to be on the tube. Yeah. You know that's a bit of a cliche of London writing, that particularly. Is. Yeah. Um, and then go into their office and get fired because that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is is what happens after they get fired and how it affects them and unless they're waking up in bed transformed into a giant cockroach or with someone they've just met the night before yeah. that's not an inherently interesting thing yeah or they wake up in bed and they find themselves paralyzed or they've had a, a terrible dream that affects you know the way they see their husband or something so it's it's more a question of rookie errors that can really easily be avoided there's no like wrong thing to do but you need to know if it's a cliche, like your character wakes up in bed at the beginning of the story, or if it's a convention that, for example, in a romantic novel, the heroine gets together with the hero, if you're breaking that convention, you need to know how to do it and why you're doing it. Why you're doing it, yeah. So kind you of being, to... being aware of what else is out there and what is expected, particularly if you're writing a genre, what's expected of that genre, means that you have freedom to break the rules because you know they're there and you know why they're there. Well, it's that cliche, isn't it, that, that, that of, of, of teaching writing, which is entirely true, I think, which is you need to know the rules if you're going to break them. 
Yeah, and they say that about art as well. Yeah, you know? all, 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 all creative <laughs> sure. pursuits, yeah, absolutely. Because you're building on, you know, thousands of years of tradition of writing, of art, you can totally break from that tradition, but knowing it's there is useful because then you'll be able to see your work in relation to all the rest of the stuff that's out there and, and also understand people's responses. Yes. I think some writers sort of fetishise the the naive. You know, I've actually had people say, no, I, I don't really read very much because I don't want to be influenced. How can you not be... That's a mistake, yeah, influenced. If you're, if you're not influenced by books, you're influenced by films and your daily life and music and politics. And, you know, you are being influenced. Don't kid yeah, yourself. You're, you're, you're an influence-free zone, like you're the boy in the bubble. It's that fetishization of the idea of originality that we've kind of got too much into, I think. Mm. I mean, I'm not saying that you can't make something that's new. But anything that's new is still informed by everything else that's come before it. Yeah, and and if it's not informed from your worldview, it will be certainly informed by that. The audience. From from the yeah. view of your audience, your reader will go, well, I mean, it's all right, but it's basically just a rehash of this other book that I wrote. And you, because you haven't been doing any reading to keep your brain pure or to keep your, your inspiration, your talent pure, you don't realise that you're repeating something that someone else has already done, but just not as well or, you know. Well, that's it. When you first start writing and somebody says, your idea is like this other idea, mm. your instinct initially is to, to say, well, I don't want to read it because I don't want to mm. know, I don't want to be influenced by it. But I've totally changed my mind you know 100% yeah. on that if someone says what you're writing is like this other thing I will find that other thing so I'm not copying exactly so make, make sure different. that you're not unconsciously Cause, reproducing because without knowing it you might be exactly treading the yeah. treading the same furrow of someone well else. you know um, a great minds think alike yeah, well exactly <laughs> I had this amazing idea about a man who wakes up turning into a giant yeah. cockroach or, you exactly know. <laughs> and if you've got that idea from kind of the collective unconsciousness of yeah. us all then somebody else has probably as well you know that's yeah. the that's the thing. And also the other thing that I tell my students is that, you know, there's, there, there is nothing new under the sun. There's the seven basic plots. To be original, you know, the most important thing about what you write is that you are writing it. Your voice, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There are many and they're like, oh, well, it's, you know, it's a love story and they're so cliched and everyone's going to know what happens. And yeah, but it's not what happens. You know, Cinderella meets the prince, they have troubles, and then they get together at the end. That is just, you know, the, the comedy plot. That's what happens in a romance book, unless you're writing kind of an anti-romance, which is fine too. But it's how it happens and who it happens to that is what's unique about your book, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There are seven basic plots, but a million stories, and the fact that they are writing about, say, their school days or something, or they're, or they're writing a love story, they're writing a murder story, only they can write that story. Yeah, it's the specifics. And that's what we want to hear. Meeting the universals. That's the, that combination is what make, makes things really yeah. ring true, I think. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And you know, a lot of people read writers whose voices, they later say, oh, I love the voice. You know, David Sedaris is a good example. Jeff Dyer, who writes just all sorts of random stuff, and it's kind of fiction, it's kind of non-fiction, it's sort of an essay as well. But people will read those books. You could write about the telephone directory, as far yeah, as they're concerned. Yeah. Write about anything, because yeah. they love the voice and the information that he brings to it and his world view. Yeah. That's really what they're, they're going for. Or Angela Carter, for yeah, example, yeah. has an extraordinary and, and a very unique style. And people will read a story that isn't really a story, a sort of plotless story. Yeah. Well, um, Mikhail Huelbeck is a good example oh, of that. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I really dig his stuff. And he just writes about somebody reading bestsellers in a hotel. And it, he's got me gripped. But he it, can, yeah. It, it, that's the thing. But he makes, it, he makes it interesting. Yeah. And, you know, I had he might have 
been blighted by a creative writing teacher early in his life who said, you can't just write a book about people reading bestsellers in a hotel. You That's know, things, the funny thing, yeah. It's nice when things happen, but things can happen at an interior level, yeah. a psychological level, as well as a you know, bang, crash, boom, somebody's blowing the White House kind mm. of level. Um, and as long, as long as you can make it interesting... So we want. Absolutely. You know? The last question that I ask people is, do they have anything that they want to plug? And so it seems mm. likely that you're going to want to plug The Whore's Asylum. Yep. And so <laughs> what is The Whore's Asylum? It's a historical novel. I began it, I think, as I said, in 2007, you know, first draft 2008. Did some rewrites and finished the, the, the big second draft in 2009. Basically, it took five years to get published and lots of rewrites. <laughs> there you go. I had a spell of unemployment in 2009, so the recession hit in 2008, yeah. and I, I just happened, my contract ended, and there was no new contract to go to, and I'd just broken up with someone, and I was miserable, stuck alone at, in my in my bedroom for three months or something the like that. The perfect environment for a writer, but I, not I was, personally oh, a good one. Yeah. I had all sorts of things that I didn't want to think about, like being single and being unemployed. Yeah. And I didn't have any money to go out. And, you know, I was paying a lot of rent for this massive room. I'm like, well, you know, it was a nice summer, actually. And I had loads of windows all around my room. So I opened the, the windows and had the sunlight coming in and had the breeze through and everything. And I just had nothing to do but write. And I was so bored. I didn't have a TV in my room or anything. The internet was a bit rubbish. So I, I just got so bored that I, I was like, OK, I'm going to tackle this thing I've been so assiduously avoiding. Mm. It, it's got to be done. And more to the point, if I don't do this... I am not going to publish this novel yeah. because my agent has asked for these changes. She's not going to just go, oh, I see you haven't made the changes. All right, then. Yeah. I have to make these changes. I have to take her comments on board and, and write a book that she wants to represent. And so that redraft a couple of months involved adding 15,000 words and cutting some other bits. And finally, it got published. It's a historical novel. It's set in 1880s Oxford. So it's, it's kind of Victoriana, I guess. It is. It's near, what they call now Neo-Victoriana. Okay, right. Yeah, so Sarah Waters, Michelle Faber, all yeah. that sort of thing. Uh, and there's been a bit of an upsurge, which is really good for Yeah, me, that's right. Obviously. It's a kind of scene at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, definitely. But it started off as a short story. I was going to do lots of short stories in different genres. And one of those genres was the Sherlock Holmes story, or the yeah. M.R. James story yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, of the 1880s. I had this idea of a triangular relationship between these three characters. So there's Stephen Chapman, who's sort of the hero, who's a medical student in Oxford. There's his best friend Edward, who's a theologian. They're both postgraduates. They're living in Jericho because they're quite poor. And that used to be the kind of the dodgy area of Oxford. It's very shishi now. It's got little cafes and bookshops and stuff. As it, it goes, used to yeah. be, yeah, for the working folk. It's in Julie Obscure as well. It was for the working folks. There's little workmen's cottages and quite a few sort of dodgy pubs. And, and it used to be the red light district, apparently. Okay. According to my friend who did some research into the history of Jericho. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. So I had a female character who comes and sets up a refuge for fallen women, uh, rescuing prostitutes in the area, and she asks this medical student to be the doctor on court, because obviously a lot of these women had health problems, not just STIs, but they consumption or something like that. Yeah, it's hard life, hard life being a... Being a whore in uh, in in, in the 1880s. It's probably not too easy now. Either. Well, no, no, <laughs> indeed. Much worse then. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But but you know the poverty. There's no kind of welfare state. These women would have to turn tricks or or starve. And so he gets involved with the shelter, and he falls in love with the woman who runs the shelter. And it comes between him and his best friend, and they've been besties for a couple of years, and they spend all their time together. And there's a jealousy that comes in from the best friend's point of view when his friend falls in love. Yeah. I think anyone who's had a really good friend who's suddenly just vanished off the face of the planet because they've got yeah. a new boyfriend or girlfriend, 
you know what that feels like. It feels like an abandonment. I was thinking about the Sherlock Holmes stories where Watson and Holmes are always kind of going on adventures together and Watson gets married in the first novel. Oh, that's very nice. And then she just vanishes. You know, Mrs. Watson is very occasionally referred to, but it seems to have no effect on, you know, the arrangement whereby he can just drop everything. And his practice as well. Poor Dr. Watson's patients. I wouldn't want to be one of them. No, you're right. Sorry, can't see you. I know it's really serious, but I've got to go off on an adventure with my mates. Uh, he just drops everything to go off uh, and, and investigate things with uh, with Sherlock Holmes, and I thought that that is an unrealistic portrait of what would happen. Yeah. If a woman, you know, if a man decides to get married or falls in love, it's going to get in the way of his, you know, male friendships, of any of his friendships. And I thought that would be a really interesting kind of triangular relationship between those three. So that's that's where it started off. And uh, Edward, who's the, the theologian, the best friend who feels he's been abandoned, tries to interfere. Particularly, he meets the woman for the first time and realizes that it's someone he's known before back in Cambridge where he was an undergraduate. She was involved with his then best friend and it ended very badly. And oh, he okay. sees her as a fan fatale. She's like, oh, I can't, let, I can't let my friend get caught up with this woman. She's dangerous. So he tries to stop their relationship, doing the wrong thing for, the, for what he believes are the right reasons. And it, yeah, it all goes horribly wrong. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a, yeah, let's not, let's not give, give any more spoilers. How can people get hold of that book? Is it? Oh, uh, it's just out there, isn't it? It's so. out there, yeah. It was published in February 2012. It's currently in trade paperback, which is that big format of paperback. Mm, which and it's got pictures as well. And it's got pictures, it's got really illustrations, nice fantastic illustrations by Max Schindler. And, uh, you know, I went through, this was something I suggested to my editor, and I thought, oh, she won't bite at it, it'll be really expensive. But she was really into it because she collects books of that period. And, you know, you see those old Dickens editions with with fantastic illustrations and also particularly the Sherlock Holmes stories with the Sydney Paget illustrations they really make them come to life well actually now as well I think it has two advantages if you have things like illustrations in your books like first of all it encourages people to buy the paperback yeah. rather than or the or the hardback rather than get it on the Kindle. Yeah, I think you can get the pictures on the Kindle, but and, it's not well, quite the and same. Then, and then the other thing is that with tablets and stuff, mm. um, you want more multimedia opportunities, and so Absolutely. again, picture, pictures can show up really well on them. So it kind of has a, a good uh, double advantage. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, yeah. I hope I, I think it's something that people aren't necessarily expecting when they read the book, but when they find it, I hope it's a really nice surprise. Yeah. Um, because you know I was asked to kind of come up with seven key scenes or just you know a list of key scenes that I thought would would work really well on the page in terms of illustrating them visually so if you have a copy of The Horse of Siren and you want to skip forward to the exciting bits although of course it's all incredibly exciting (laughs) but you know if you like the really dramatic scenes you just flick through until you find a picture and so the first one is the ballroom scene where Edward meets Diana and realises who she is and then the one after that I think is a duel there's a duel fought on Midsummer Common in Cambridge and then there's you know there's a scene at an orgy there's a scene in a low tavern where the, the doctor's talking to one of the prostitutes so that's really good uh, yeah so you can get it in most any all good bookshops as they yeah. say it's and not a good bookshop if it doesn't have a copy of my book in there and it's available through Amazon and stuff yeah like that, it's yeah. available through Amazon it's on Kindle the first run has sold out Amazon's probably still got a few in stock but if you want the nice big trade paperback edition with, with the red cover now's the time to, to get hold of it because the stocks will be they're not they're not doing a reprint they're letting the first Printing, okay. print because they're bringing out the paperback quite early they're bringing it out in September this will probably go this probably won't go live till um, September October time is that oh, going okay. to change the details it is, it is going to change the details because the paperback edition is going to be known as the unpierced heart 
Okay. Which is the subtitle of the original book. So it says The Whore's Asylum or The Unpierced Heart. So it's a bit more uh, family friendly, let's say, on your book. Yes. The reason for this is that uh, it was the original title was considered too racy to appear on the shelves of W.H. Smith and the supermarkets. Supermarkets, of course. <laughs> Particularly, yeah. which for a paperback format is like the mass market paperback is really, really important, to, obviously, to get your books into Smith's. So the decision was taken, and we didn't know this when we brought, brought out the first edition. The decision was taken that the second edition, the mass market paperback, will be called The Unpierced Heart, and uh, people won't have to be embarrassed about reading it on the train. Yeah, well, that's a good, good yeah. decision. So just go back and, and change all the horses out of references <laughs> to The Unpierced Heart. Well, I mean, yeah. both, both will work, I think, when you're Googling mm. it, I'm sure. Mm. Liars League... How can people find out about Liars League and where's Liars League? And okay, at www.liarsleague.com. We've got archives of all the stories from 2007 onwards. So we've got text and MP3 archives of almost everything. That's over 200 stories we've read. Probably more like 250 or 300 now. And from February last year, we've started videoing the stories. Of yeah, that's we've right. always recorded them as MP3s. So we have the actors' performance, you know, for, for, for almost all of our archive stories. Now we video them as well, so we have a YouTube channel, which is YouTube slash Liars League. And you can find you on Facebook in a group, oh, yeah, which I, a group. I'm a member of, and I see all the videos as they come yeah, out. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a group on Facebook. We're on Twitter, yeah. at Liars League. And also, you know, in the last year or so, we've spawned a couple of, you know, tributaries or, or sister organisations. So there's also Liars League Leeds our northern cousin and there's a Liars League New York yeah, as that's well exciting. which is doing really well which is run by one of the original Liars Andrew Lloyd-Jones I, I think there's 125 videos on our YouTube channel for Liars League well, so plenty if you're to ever bored through, yeah. yeah you can you can look at all the archive stuff yeah. Liars League is an event that happens yes. on live ju- event. every second Tuesday. The whole point of Liars League is a live event in front of an audience. Uh, I can't believe I just went straight to it's the really, website. It's really easy to do, though. I do that sometimes like with oh. stand-up tragedy or whatever. Like you, you focus on where people can immediately access yeah. it. But actually, the exciting thing is to come along to the live show. Exactly. It happens, it happens, what was it? It the, happens every second Tuesday of the month. Right. Or the second Tuesday of every month or whatever. But not every every fortnight it happens every month on the second tuesday we have a theme every month so the one for september will be food and drink and we encourage writers to submit to us stories up to two thousand words we all read them through we vote on them once we've got our final five we cast the actors we've got a company of actors who've all auditioned for us over a hundred actors so you know we can usually find the right actor for a particular story we can cast it we rehearse it and then on the tuesday night the actors read the stories it's five pounds on the door and it happens at the phoenix pub in Cavendish Square. We open the doors at 7 o'clock, uh, kick off at 7.30, and, you know, you can drink and eat and stuff. Not too loudly. <laughs> through, while the stories are going on, but you can sit back, you can have a pint, and you can you can watch the performance. And that's really nice for me. I really like events in pubs. Bookshops are fine, but it's much more difficult to kind of sit down and relax. And you can't have a meal in a bookshop, and no, you can probably right. only have a small glass of white wine, you yeah, know. And it's just a, just a really nice, kind of relaxed, less formal environment to hear stories being read. Absolutely. I think that's why that's the you environment know, quite a loyal audience. The environment stories were made for, mm. I think, originally. The Mead Hall. Exactly. Absolutely. People are quaffing while they're listening to this you know, narrative <laughs> poem. It's, it's the entertainment. That's right. And then you've also got a blog called I Have Never, that's right? Yeah, which has not been updated for a while. No, time. well, I was going throw that in to give you some incentive. Oh, it's well, a really absolutely. nice concept. So, uh, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of based on, you know, the game I Have Never, the drinking 
thinking game. And also there's a programme called I've Never Seen Star Wars, hosted by Marcus Brigstock. And the idea was, basically, I wrote the blog up until my book got published. Yeah, and then that and took then over I was your life. And yeah. just monster busy yeah. doing book-related things. I basically hadn't done it for six months, which is really terrible. But I would do something every week that I had never done before. For example, I never read Harry Potter. I got endless stick from my students. I used to teach kind of American students uh, over, over a month. You know, they're all 16, 17, and they were the Harry Potter generation. Yeah. And they could not believe it when I said I'd never read Harry Potter. Well, I was, you know, I was like 21 when the first book came out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I so I read, I read, read the first so. Harry Potter and did my, did my long analysis of it. And, you know, I've got one that's waiting the wings. I've never been on a Jack the Ripper walk. I've never seen Jaws. But I am going across the US with my sister in August and September. I'm doing a road trip across the US. Oh, wow. And she says she'll drive if I'll blog. So, so it's definitely worth checking out by the time this drops. Then. Exactly, yeah. There should be plenty you've, you've of said it in public now, material. Well. <laughs> you know, that'll be. I, I've never, I've never been on Route sixty six. I've never been to San Francisco. I've never, you know, all sorts of things that you can do in America. You can't do here. It's just about new experiences and making myself have new experiences as well. You know, yeah. there's something I don't know where, where it comes from, but someone said, "Do one thing every day that scares you." Yeah, I, I kind of brought that down to do one thing every week that you haven't done before yeah no I like that idea I'm, I kind of believe in it in mm. in I think one of the things I try to be as a writer is a method writer I always think Ooh. you know like do experiences so you can write about them. it's very tempting as a writer to just stay at home yeah this kind of gets you out and makes you do stuff no I mean I know that experience exactly because I mean we're we're, this is my version of it, you know. Yeah, I, yeah. I, uh, now Talking I have to, to go people. out. And, no, that's you know, really cool. I, and I'm just building up a library of characters. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like as a it writer, it's, it's it's important to talk to other people and find out what they think because otherwise, you, all your characters will be you. you. <laughs> yes, I mean, that's right. This is female middle-aged me. Yeah. This is you know this is a black version of me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's been a real pleasure getting better acquainted with you. Oh, you, and too. the last thing that I ask people uh-huh. is to say goodbye to the audience. Mm. Is this like on Deal or No Deal, where they have to say, well, they have to come back to the next interview? <laughs> Who's your next interview with? The one I was going to do tomorrow has been cancelled, but I'm going to be doing an Edinburgh season that will come out before this goes out. Um, oh. So I'll be doing some in Edinburgh with people who are up in Edinburgh. Okay, well, goodbye, audience. I hope it's been interesting. Um, by my book, obviously, I have to say that. And, yeah, keep listening to whoever is next on Dave's list. I'm sure they'll be really interesting. They will, indeed. Goodbye. The next Lions League will be next Tuesday, that's the 11th of September, and as Katie said, the theme is food and drink. That event is happening the day after. You can come and see me on the 10th at the Hackney Attic, launching Spark London Hackney. It's an open mic, we're going to be telling true stories, you can tell your true story, come along. Our theme is back to school, so anybody who has any stories about going back to school, five minute stories, open mic, you don't know what you're going to get, it's going to be exciting, I'll probably tell a story, and if you come along and you meet me, you can even come on Getting Better Acquainted, if you want. Also, you should definitely check out Katie Darby's blog, because I have never been in a hurricane. That's the current post at the top of that blog. So yeah, she chose an exciting time to go over to America. And I think she's alright from everything she said. But yeah, read about her hurricane experiences and other American experiences over on her blog. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter. At GBA Podcast. 
you can find it on Facebook. It's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. And on the Stitcher Smart Radio app that you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the App Store. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.